Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, go ahead and click that subscribe button. We hope that you'll check us out also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok and find out more about content. Of course, we encourage you to also check out the website at rayreynoldsrap.com. We hope you enjoy today's program. For our third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast, we've decided to do a couple of things that will help in you strengthening your own personal walk with God. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to be very intentional in the way we present the gospel message. Uh, And we're hoping that through some of these lessons that you will have a desire to grow more spiritually. Uh, And to help us with that, we are going to deal with some tough questions. Uh, In some broadcasts, you'll hear me talking about subjects that maybe even your preacher or uh, Bible class teacher is afraid to, to discuss because of the basically the sensitiveness of that particular lesson. And the second thing that we're doing is we are encouraging people to read their Bible all the way through. And so to help us with that, we are doing surveys of New Testament books. Some of the lessons will be one lesson. Some of them will be uh, two or three or four lessons, depending on the size of the book and the contents. But right now, we want to present to you one of those lessons on a New Testament book. I encourage you to grab your Bible and study along. If you got a notepad, piece of paper, highlighter, that'll probably help as you begin to make notes and think about uh, how you want to read this book from cover to cover. And I hope that it's a blessing to you. The book of Revelation is probably one of the, if not the book, that people often express that they are nervous to study, uh, hesitant to study, and when you bring up this book to people, some people will use the word confused. You ever heard that word used? If you were to describe the book of Revelation with one word, what would it be? What would it be besides confusing? Prophetic, yeah. What else? Revealing. Revealing. That's really what the word means, to reveal, to uncover, to unveil. Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Symbolic. Symbolic. Very good. So these are terms that we think of when we bring up the term or the word revelation. And I do emphasize it's revelation. It's not revelations. Uh, when my kids were little, I would. it's hard because when you sing the song enough, sometimes people put an S on the end, and I would always say it's the revelation. It's a continuing unveiling uh, from one to the end. But what do we know about the book of Revelation? Well, a few things that we know is John is the writer. Now, John's writings are found in the Gospel of John. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are also books that he wrote. And Revelation is the bookend, if you will, on the Bible. It's not the end of God's work, but it's the bookend on his inspired word. It was meant to be the last book that was written to conclude, or at least to show the conclusion, so that at the end of the book, when you read it, the emphasis is Christ is still working. It's about to come to an end, so be ready. That's the book. You know, the basic, basic plot is uh, the devil's bad, God is good, and Jesus wins. You know, that's it. It's victory. That's what Revelation is about. So as we start thinking about the book, I want you to remember that it is John who pens it, but we'll see next week with the seven letters, they're in red in most of our Bibles because it is the words of Jesus spoken to the seven churches. And each one has a unique message for them alone. And uh, we'll go through those uh, in our next time together. But John, of course, which we studied before, uh, is the one who, according to the first two verses, 
uh, is the one who bears witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then we also know he was the brother of James. James is the son of Zebedee, and we talked about the brothers together just a couple of Sunday nights ago. Uh, he's also the author, as I said, of John and First and Second and Third John. His authorship is supported. Sometimes when you read books, and I'm not sure what I did here with my Bible. Where did I put it? Oh, here it is. Sometimes you need that when you're teaching, right? Uh, sometimes when you read through. Uh, character studies and look at individuals, you, you notice things positive and negative, uh, but when you read a story or a, a text from scripture, you begin to wonder a little bit more about who wrote it, why it was written, and so forth. There are critics, and this is one reason why I wanted to address this tonight, especially when it comes to Revelation, and I say this with as, as lovingly as I can, be cautious who you read when it comes to Revelation. While there are some who want to unveil and to uncover the truth and share the message of what John is trying to say to these seven churches, it, it, that's great. But there are many, multiplied many, far more that teach things that are not only absolutely false, but in some cases blasphemous in its references and, and, and criticism of text. So what we know about John is, is it was not only... Uh, uh, said to be written by the gospel of, or said to be written by the apostle John there are other other of many other writers uh, in the New, Te uh, New Testament times and in the next few centuries that say this message was impactful to the seven churches who received it so I want you to think about that as we go through the book the seven churches who received these letters which is very clear from the first three chapters it impacted them and they did the things that Jesus instructed them to do. Uh, men like Justin Martyr or Clement of Alexandria, they, these guys all said that the impact of this book of Revelation was uh, for not just that generation, but even for their generations moving forward, the second and third century. If we're going to date the book, now this is another reason why it's important we, we look very carefully about our commentaries that we read on Revelation. Up until maybe 60 or 70 years ago, it was vastly, overwhelmingly believed that the book was written between 90 and 95. Some have pinpointed somewhere between 95 and 96 during the reign of Domitian. And that was just universally believed. Nobody thought any different. But then uh, there were a few individuals that were preaching and teaching and began to believe that it's possible... Now, I'm saying without evidence now. Did you hear that? Some men that got together said it's possible it could have been written before the fall of Jerusalem. Now, why does that matter? Because if you change the way you view the time it was written, you can change the elements of the book to fit what you want it to say. And so they will use it to say he's prophesying of Rome entering and destroying Jerusalem. He's prophesying of the time in AD 70 when Titus, General Titus, later becoming Emperor Titus, would come in and destroy the city. And this is underneath the reign of Nero. And it helps fit certain molds of certain doctrines that are taught. But just until recently, in just the last few generations, has that ever been stated? Nobody believed it, and there's really no evidence to say that. So we believe that it is a later date. It was written uh, to the time when uh, John was in, uh, on the island of Patmos, which he gives us here in the first chapter. Uh, and he is, if you will, you might think of it as house arrest. He's been put into exile. 
Um, they have attempted to kill him. It hasn't worked. They've attempted to silence him. That hasn't worked either. And so they feel like if they shove him over here on an island and, and leave him there until he dies, and the reason why they kept him alive, by the way, is because the emperor was scared to death of him. Uh, they thought, well, he will just shut up. He won't say anything. He'll stay there and he'll be quiet. But John was not quiet. Uh, in fact, the Lord opens uh, up a vision to him, which we'll see here, and he begins to write. And write, he does several chapters of a powerful uh, testimony of what's going to happen. The purpose of the book. So I've written a few things here uh, for the purpose. Uh, one is the book is stated to begin the, the beginning and the end of the book is for that audience. The purpose is to reach the first century Christians. It was written to prepare those seven churches for persecution. And this is why uh, several times it will say these things are coming quickly, coming shortly. And we'll address that again here in a moment as well. But these things will shortly come to you. And that's Jesus speaking to the church. Uh, it's also a direct revelation from Christ himself that the enemies of God in the first century that were killing the martyrs that are described through the book are going to be punished for what they've done. Uh, and he promises immediate judgment. In fact, one, one time he'll say to them, if you'll just wait 10 days, they'll, you know, you'll receive a crown of life. That means they're going to die. In 10 days, they're going to die and receive a crown. But he says he will take care of it. Now, there's a, there's a section here in Revelation where it says that the martyrs were underneath the throne saying, when are you going to avenge our death? Are you going to go down and avenge our death? And the Lord does not in that moment, because it is not within God's timeline, to punish those that were wicked, which we believe probably was the Romans. And some people believe it mixed in with that would be the Jews. But nevertheless, these things are going to happen in uh, the first part of the book. It's going to be happening in the first century. So it's a direct revelation from Christ himself. And the judgment was toward two enemies. One is to Babylon, which is the harlot, which most of us will say, the, the most, most, uh, maybe the most agreed upon uh, term or, or word that could be used there as Babylon would be of Rome. And then the beast, which is all the, basically supported the harlot, funding the harlot. And so some people will say that could be the falling away of the church. You'll hear a lot of those kinds of things. But we believe that it's basically describing Rome and also the influence of the Jews. And for faithful disciples, disciples it is a book of comfort. There are seven blesseds, which we'll, we'll do that at the end if we have time. And then we've got the views. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because, as I said, we'll get off in the weeds. But there are basically five views. Uh, there's a new one all the time that, that maybe somebody comes out, but it can compare to one of these as well. One is the preterist viewpoint. That is that the book of Revelation was written to seven churches that do not exist anymore. And the message was for them to do what he said in order to receive what he said they'd receive. Does that make sense? The second is the historic view, or the, basically the historical view. And that is that Revelation was meant to be a panoramic view of the churches through the ages. So let's say the first letter is written to the first age within the church. And the second letter is written to the second age of the church. And you'll see charts. I, I have one. I'm not going to put it up here because I don't want to confuse you. But these people who hold to this view will say... That uh, one stage was the first century church. The second stage was the second and third century church. The third stage was the building of the Roman Catholic Church. And from that point forward, uh, there's a stage where it introduces Luther and Calvin until we get to the Restoration, which will be at the end of the last stage. So some people have the historical view. There's the futurist view. And this is, if you have any friends that are in Christendom, 
outside of the Lord's body, uh, they will hold to a futurist view. And one of two, there's, and again, I don't want to wait, wait out too far, but there are uh, premillennials and there are postmillennials. And they believe that there's going to be some thousand year reign is taken literal and that Jesus is going to come back pre-millennial before and post-millennial after his coming. He'll reign for a thousand years. Then there's the uh, idealist view, and that is Revelation doesn't deal with any significant offense. It's all figurative. Just read it, enjoy it, and there's nothing to apply. And the last one is the eclectic view. <clears throat> that is, you can pick and choose whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, and I don't necessarily recommend the Baskin-Robbins view, okay? I think that there is a specific thing that Jesus is speaking of. God would not have written to us in this way if he didn't believe we could understand it. All things are written for our learning. So those are the basic five views of interpretation for Revelation. Any thoughts? All right, we're going to get out of the weeds for a minute. But any, any thoughts, questions, comments? All right. Let's go to number five, which is the apocalyptic language. I don't want us to get uh, too frustrated with the language that is used. There are terms that other books use that we're unfamiliar with. Uh, there maybe the maybe the first time you heard the term Rabboni or Eloi Eloi Lama Sabachthani in Scripture. Did any of you go? No, I can't read the Gospel of Matthew anymore. No, what do you do? Well, I'm interested in what that word means. What does it mean? Uh, there are several times, even in the Old Testament prophets, words or phrases are spoken. And if we want to really know, we dig a little deeper. We grab a concordance and a dictionary, uh, and we begin to look up those terms and say, okay, what does that mean? And I want us to look at the language as symbolic. And we'll talk about that, too, in just a moment. The apocalyptic literature often reflects a dark time in history. And the reason why John uses apocalyptic language is he is a political prisoner. He is in religious exile. And he is living during the time of the worst of the worst emperors in Rome. If John were to pick up pen and tablet or scroll and write on the third of November in the year 1563 or in the year 152 or whatever BC, if he were to write these dates and say exactly when it was going to happen, it wouldn't be anything like in the Old Testament. There's only a couple of examples. Isaiah is maybe the only one that I can think of that gave actual names for certain things. So for John to outright come out and say, this is the reason why we need to study it, to say it's going to happen here, and it's going to happen this way, and it's going to happen by this individual, he would have been not only persecuted, but he probably would have been put to death. Specifically, when it's written to seven churches that are underneath Roman rule. Don't miss this. Most of the cities, larger cities, that wanted to stay in good uh, relationship with Rome, they would build a Roman emperor altar. They would basically build what we would consider to be a cathedral inside of their city limits with a place where sacrifices could be offered and gifts could be given. You could give your money there. You could sacrifice your animals there. And those cities who were willing to negotiate with Rome to build such a place 
When it came time to collect taxes, when it came time to, to uh, invade certain areas, if you were a city that was in good standing with Rome, they pretty much gave you a pass. That's the reason why these seven churches are used by John, because all seven of these churches are in cities where there are altars and places of worship to the Roman emperor. That's important. Because the Roman emperor had made it a rule that you had to sacrifice to him because the Romans thought that their emperors were gods. <laughs> a lot like the pharaohs of old in Egypt. They looked at them like they were gods. The Greeks, same thing. They had their gods, their pantheon. So when you look at Rome, they say we have, they, they had a senate. They had a lot of similarities to, to government we see in democracy. But they have on the throne is only Caesar. He's the only one that is deserving of worship. Well, the Jews had found a way around it because the Jews would say, well, we're not going to, we cannot, we will not offer a sacrifice to Caesar because he's not our God. But here's what we'll do. We'll offer a sacrifice on behalf of Caesar. And the, the Romans said, okay, we'll go with that. But Christians didn't offer sacrifices because Jesus was the one and only sacrifice. And so what they would do is the Romans would come from city to city Especially in these cities that were supposed to be prominent. I mean, this is where, you know, we talk about blue and red states. You know, <laughs> this, this, this particular area was well favorited towards government. They would come into these cities and to set an example is they'd pull people out and they'd say, do you believe Caesar is God? Will you confess Caesar is God? And, the, and the, anybody else of any other religious persuasion would say, sure, because they believed in a pantheon of gods. But Christians refused because they would only confess Jesus as Lord. And after given three admonitions, we're told in history, they would be put to death. Many of them in the middle of the street. Some of them would be killed immediately on the spot so that you actually watch someone be killed and they say, now it's your turn. Will you confess Caesar as God? No. Will you confess Caesar as God? No. Will you confess Caesar as God? It's your last chance. No. Kill him. Next. Others they would take and line them up in large groups and kill them in one basically a mass uh, thing. They had crucifixion, and of course the Jews had stoning, but there were a lot of different ways to punish individuals. But the ultimate goal was to put all Christians to death because they would not worship the emperor. So Jesus selectively chooses seven churches where there were idols to be worshipped and challenges them to remember that he is on the throne, that God is on the throne. That's the whole book is these churches were being persecuted because they would not worship an idol. And God says throughout the book, I'm going to take care of them. Don't you worry about them. You just keep serving. You keep doing. Uh, another thing, too, to remember is apocalyptic literature is often uh, personalities between good and evil. It's not that hard when you read the characters in the book of Revelation to know whether it's a good guy or a bad guy. Okay? Lamb. Good guy or bad guy. Good. Dragon. Bad. Snake. Serpent. Bad. Okay. Lion. Good. Even though he's vicious. Okay. Jesus is both lion and lamb. So just looking at the terms, you can know that there is a difference between good and evil. And this is a, a way of using personalities to personification. Using, using words and terms without calling out the evil person. Uh, apocalyptic literature also gives uh, predictions about the outcome, the struggle between good and evil, and that's what it's about. And if you know, if you've read, then you know Revelation says God wins. 
Apocalyptic literature also allows a message to be given through visions. And this is one continuous revelation, but there are separate sections. Many of the sections actually tell the same story in a little different light. Does that sound familiar? And the way Jesus taught, he used parables. And oftentimes he told parables two different ways or three different ways, but it has the same meaning. Parable of the sower, parable of the tares, you see? Taking the same kind of story, but using it. The lost lamb in uh, Matthew, same thing. You got the lost sheep in uh, Luke 15. And so Jesus would often use these illustrations here and there, and they became synonymous with, with something good or something evil. And this is just a series of visions. It's a series of bowls. It's a series of trumpets. It's a series of churches. And basically the same outcome every time. Uh, the apocalyptic literature also challenges the recipient to pay attention, to do your homework, uh, to interpret the entire message. It's, some people say that it's coded. You know, there's like secret codes in it. There's no secret codes. God has eliminated the mystery. If, if it wasn't able to be interpreted, it wouldn't be called the revelation, right? And that's common sense, or as they say where I came from, common horse sense. If it's called the revelation, it's because it's revealed. There is nothing to be covered up. It's not like each individual story has some written uh, specific illustration or, or character that's going to be seen. And, oh my goodness, I see this happening now. This has got to be... You know, the Apache helicopters flying through Pakistan to get to Vladimir Putin, you know, or something like that. This is the way people will talk because they like to use those scare tactics. But Jesus does not teach like that. If he ever used figurative language, it was not to entice or to scare or to turn someone away or to say it was too confusing. It was meant for them to go back to their Bible. And he says to the Pharisees, why don't you go and find out what this means? If you don't understand, go read your Bible. So apocalyptic literature is meant for us to do homework. If we want to study the book of Revelation, I would encourage you to do this. Clear a month of your schedule. <laughs> Clear some time. Have a Bible open, same translation that you use. A Bible open to the book of Ezekiel. Okay, keep it there, right? Take another Bible and open it up to the book of Daniel. Keep it right there. Open, easy to reference, easy to get to. You got, then you need Isaiah. Okay, take these prophetic books, have them open all around you. And then when you begin to read, stop at everything, every single word. Pull out a concordance and look where those words are used. John is very emphatic on Daniel. He uses Daniel a lot. We usually say he uses Ezekiel a lot. And there are some, some phrases and stories of Ezekiel. But Daniel's in there too. And there's a lot of really neat references back to prophecies of the Old Testament. Uh, so why are we fearful to study something that's apocalyptic? Or are we? Are we fearful to do that? What is the, what is the issue why we struggle with studying something that seems apocalyptic? You may not like the end promise. Okay. If I don't know where I'm going, I may not like the end. Yes. I think most people just don't understand it. It's so confusing to them. Right. There's a lot of people that teach it a lot of different ways. And that, that adds to the confusion, right? I think that's the whole point of it, that a lot of folks are, are scared to look at it because there's so many different viewpoints. They don't know how to answer it off the top of your head and it takes work to get to that. 
Yeah. Get the answer. And if they're not going to do what you said and devote some time to actually figuring out the answers that we would do to something else, mm -hmm. you don't even want to talk about it because then you're going to look like an idiot. Right. And the people who are saying, oh, this, you know, if my car is unmanned at some point, you know, there you go. Yeah. You know, how do you answer that? Well, if I, if I don't understand the apocalyptic language, if I don't understand the revelations, if I don't understand which bit will feel, mm -hmm. how I can answer that, I don't even want to get in that discussion. Right. I do find it humorous, though. Uh, maybe it's not, but I, I had a, a taught the teenager several times, and when I was teaching them next door, Revelation came up, and I said, "How many of you guys just go nuts over Harry Potter? You know, why is it you got to run and get in line? I, the books have been out for like two decades now. I know I'm old, but but the kids they will find a book or a series of books." And they will just dig right in. If you've ever read any Rowling stuff, which I do not recommend, by the way, <laughs> but you can read it, study it. Uh, she intentionally leads you through where there are clues from book one that will not come out until book five. And, and you know, good writers can actually look. They do this all the time with shows, TV shows, is they've got to kill a character off. And so they got to go back and figure out how they can do this. And they go, oh, yeah, he has a brother from such and such or something like that. There are certain plot holes in series that somehow just disappear and you forget it. You know, it just it didn't happen. Seinfeld does that a lot. There's there are certain characters that are introduced that you never see again as if they never existed. Uh, I can name about four or five. I'm not going to do that. But it's really interesting how in... Rowling's books is she will mention something briefly that she has full intention of completing in book six or book five. The reason why is because we like breadcrumbs. We like a good mystery. How many of you were raised on Scooby-Doo? Come on. Come on. Mystery machine? I mean, we all know that, by the way, I'm going to ruin it for you. The first character that the team gets in contact with is always the villain. The very first one is always the villain. That's the way they wrote it. Uh, but we watched, wanting to see, how are they going to, who's the bad guy, you know? And it's, you know, I should, hadn't been for those meddling kids, you know? But we, we loved mysteries. We loved them. How many of you read Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys? You know, we love that kind of stuff. We dig into that stuff. We like the mysteries. You probably watched Dateline and 2020 and the History Channel and all these things, all these things. You like learning about all that kind of stuff. So God does us all this beautiful, wonderful favor, privilege, whatever you want to call it, to put a book in here that allows us to dig if we really want to know the answers that are in the book. And so we should not be in any way. You should look at Revelation the same as you do the book of Hebrews or the Gospel of John. Is There are intended messages that are supposed to be seen. And remember, again, just like Ephesians and Philippians and Galatians, those are written to specific churches at a specific time. Throwing this out there, I don't know if you still got copies of it, but anybody who wants to dig into it, Brother Bill has got a book. He wrote that about 10, 12 years ago, we did chapter by chapter study on Sunday night mm -hmm. in the auditorium. And I'm sure he's probably still got it somewhere out there. I have no idea what he's talking about. Don't know. He has no idea what I'm talking about. You probably know what you're talking about. I, know what you're talking about. <laughs> I remember that we did the series because yeah. when you were gone, you asked me to fill in, and uh -huh. I was like, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. It's on the computer. It is. I'm sure it's on the computer. Um, the cool thing is, though, the more you dig in, the more you find there's more to dig. It's kind of like when you start digging for gold. 
You find it, you finally find it. There's guys in silver mines right now that have been up there for 30 years because they found one piece on the third day. You know, they just keep on digging, they keep on digging. One day they're going to strike it rich. But the great thing is there's gold on every page to mine from Scripture. And Revelation is no different. There's a lot of good stuff that can be gleaned from it. And so we want to take the parts that are easy to understand and use them, accept them. One of the reasons why apocalyptic language is used in Revelation is because the numbers represent symbols. And I don't have time to go through all the symbols, but here are just a few that are listed. One is 666. That's a big one. The mark of the beast. Uh, the number seven is used a lot. Well, why use all those? Well, when you use the number seven, I think I put this in your handout uh, on number seven. Look at these numbers, seven, through Revelation. It's very small print. That's why I put it on your handout. Look at seven churches, seven letters, seven angels, seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven heavenly angels. The ones before were messengers, probably the ministers of the church. Uh, not that all preachers are angels. They were just the ones that delivered the message. And a messenger is one who is sent. Uh, then uh, trumpets, seven thunders. There's 7,000 people in Revelation 11. Seven heads, seven crowns, seven flags, seven bowls, seven hills, seven kings, seven visions. Almost every single chapter drops the number seven sim symbolically, intentionally, as a breadcrumb. Because the number seven represents two numbers. It represents the number four, which represents humanity. There are four corners of the earth. If you're a flat earther, it's round. But the four corners mean that it's in four separate directions. You have east, west, north, and south. The winds, the seas, all are directed in those four ways. We have four limbs, two arms, two legs. Four represents humanity, or the earth, if you will. Three represents the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when you see three mentioned, it's always in reference to something God is doing. When four is mentioned, it's always in reference to something humans are doing. But when you put the two together, when heaven and earth are in unison, it is perfect. And you think, well, how could seven be perfect? It's an odd number. Just roll with it. Okay, seven is a perfect number. It's a perfect number. When humanity, when earth is in line with heaven, when heaven and earth are one, when heaven and earth are both doing the same thing, accomplishing the same mission, that was God's goal in the garden. He gave Adam and Eve a specific task to tend to that perfect paradise that he created for them. And they sinned and they fell. And he spent the next 4,000 years preparing the seed of Christ to come into the world. And when he did, then it changed everything. And so the number seven, when it's used, and I have a book, I'll actually put it on the website tonight, I forgot to do that, um, that you can download and study verse by verse which, if you want to do that. But this number seven is the most important number in Revelation. You're going to see also numbers like 10 and 12. When 12 is used it, used, it is often in reference to something God has done with a group of people. There are 12 elders, or 24, which is double, 12 apostles, 12 tribes. And so it's the using of man's, humans, to do something to do God's will. Seven, there's messengers. Fourteen uh, is another mention of this number. But twelve is reference to, again, tribes, apostles. Some, something that God is doing through his people. 
Uh, now, to help us understand how figurative language works, let's use an illustration we're probably familiar with. How many of you, without even looking at the verse, you probably can't read the verse on the screen, can tell me what this is from? Daniel chapter 2. It's from Daniel chapter 2. Verse 4. That's right. And it's referencing the four kingdoms and the falling apart of those kingdoms. And so when you see the first one, you have the head of gold, which represents the Babylonian Empire. And I think I put this in your handout. Yeah. The second is the chest of arm, and arms of silver, which represents the Persians who would come in and, and they were there for a uh, short time, basically when you look at all of them in, in a whole. And then you have the, 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 the legs, or the, at least the thighs of brass, which is Greece. And then you have the iron, which is the Roman Empire, the strongest of the empires. And it would be during those days, Daniel says, that that iron will mix with clay and a great, a great rock cut out of the mountain would destroy the feet. And it would basically make ensure, ensure that the kingdom, there would be no kingdom like any of these before it. Because the kingdom that is being established in that day is the church. In Matthew 16, Jesus reflects on that, telling you know, Peter he's made a good confession. And then he emphasizes to him that his kingdom is going to come. His kingdom is going to be built. And Peter has the keys to the kingdom, which is the church. And so we have probably studied this before. And we've done a good job, hopefully as ministers and teachers, to communicate how this works. This is an image of Daniel that can easily be uh, studied and answered. And so the same thing with many of the other things. The problem is there's just a lot of voices. And I'm always leery of people who say they're an expert on Revelation. You know, it's a, it's, if you're an expert on it, we, we probably need to talk. Um, nobody's a, probably a real expert on it because there's so many different things. You can chase a lot of rabbits. But here's the Daniel 2 prophecy. But Daniel 3 has a prophecy. Daniel 11 and 12 have prophecies. And Daniel uses the same kind of symbolism, the same kind of words and phrases to be able to help, uh, at that time, the Israelites to know what God was doing. And so it, it's basically leaving clues as to what is to happen next. And I remind you that these clues, these breadcrumbs, are intended to help the early church, and I'm, you're going to hear me say that a lot this week and a lot next week, is the emphasis is to be made on the early church. Let's look at the first few verses together. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. How, what is the, what's the word there? How quickly? Shortly, shortly. Underline that. Highlight it. Shortly take place. And he sent and he signified it by his angel and his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, all things that he saw. Blessed, there's that first beatitude. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear, it's a big word in Revelation. Read and hear the words of the prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is Underline that word near. The time is near. Okay? If I throw a ball at you, it's not near until it hits you. Right? It's coming very soon. It's coming shortly. And these phrases are used repeatedly through Revelation. Take special note. 
When that phrase is used in red, Jesus is speaking it to the church. Now, there are times that many prophets will use phrases and terms about something coming or the last day, but it seems far off. What Jesus speaks of here is things that are going to happen soon. These seven churches need to be on high alert for what is happening. Then it says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. If you're John and you get this message, it's almost like you ever had some, somebody come out and announce something and you're just so eager to hear the speaker. You know, if you've ever been to a, a concert or anything like that and they come out and they hype you up, they get you... This angel's the hype man, okay? He comes out and he says, guess what? We're going to talk about Jesus. Jesus is the one who came and died and took away our sins. And the message is his message to the seven churches, which will be in the next chapter. And so the angel is telling John, you've got a message that's going to be hand-delivered to you. And when it is, you're going to have to use it and be impactful with it. And I love how he emphasizes the blood of Christ cleansing us from sin. He can't even get into verse 5 without talking about baptism, which is awesome. Verse 6, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they that pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. If you have a friend that is premillennial or postmillennial, tell him to read the first chapter again. Read the first chapter again. He says these things will shortly come to pass. They will happen quickly, and every eye will see it. There's no secret rapture where a few people disappear. It says when Jesus does what he's about to say, he's going to do, and this happens in the first century, with, his, uh, with the work that's going on in the early churches, and then in the end when we get to chapter 20. Yeah. I, I got a book that disagrees with you. Okay. It's entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did it happen in 88? I think he missed it. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely missed it. But you will have people that will tell you that, and this comes from teachers. Really, uh, just to, my personal thoughts, I know I shouldn't offer my opinion too much from the pulpit, but my personal opinion on this particular subject with Revelation and the views of Revelation is that there are certain preachers and that regularly do this. They use phrases and words and terms and uh, identifying markers of things, interpretations of things that are so high and so above everybody else's head that the only way you can get the real answer is from him or her in some cases. And so if you have someone who says, this is what this means, and you say, well, I don't know that it means that. Oh, you're, 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 you think you know better than I do? Because I'm telling you what it means. And so it's more of a power thing. Um, this is how they sell books and get donations and so forth. But it's clear from the first chapter, when this happens, it's not going to be done quietly. Then it says, uh, behold, he's coming in clouds, even those who pierced him. 
And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. You tell amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. It's red now. Jesus is speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was there in the beginning. John 1 says he was. And it says it in Genesis chapter 1. It says, and the Spirit of God moved on the face of the earth. And remember, John talks about how that uh, in the beginning, everything that was made was made because of him, through him. So Jesus was there. He says, I was there at the beginning, and I'm going to be there at the end, uh, says the Lord. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So a description that's used in the Father, Jesus now uses in reference to himself. Who is, who was, and will always be. Now, verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulations. What, what is he to the people in this? Like, write that down. Underline it. Companion. He says, I'm in this with you. Methuselah was 969 years when he died. How old would John be if he were still waiting on the coming? If John were still waiting on Jesus to bring uh, victory, if you will, these seven churches. He'd be a couple thousand years old, right? Jesus says, I am coming. In other words, he is going to do what he says he's going to do. He's going to keep his promise to these seven churches. Now, that doesn't mean that he's coming back for the whole earth. What it means is he's going to bring judgment. Joel talks about a judgment, which happens on the day of Pentecost. There are days of judgment where God brings judgment and he brings it upon individuals, but he is not bringing the final day until the end. Revelation 20. Yeah. But here John says he's in. Mm-hmm. So we're not waiting for it. No, there's no seven years. It's going on. When I, when I lived in Idaho, uh, we had some members, <clears throat> their parents and brothers and sisters, uh, bought houses. This is how strategic it was. They bought houses that had dirt basements. And they bought special lighting. And they planted gardens in their basements. Uh, they had corn, tomatoes, you name it. They bought big houses with dirt floors in the basement, special lighting to grow their own vegetables. They started hoarding food because guess what was coming? Y2K, you know? In fact, we were all panicky, freaking out. Some of you probably remember that. And basically all that happened was they were saying, oh, the computers are going to shut down because it, it doesn't understand how, how it can be 2000. It's, it's the 1900s. And they just never thought we'd get that far along. And all basically happened is you pushed a button and everything reset to zero. I mean, it's uh, so easy a child could explain it. But they panicked. And they built these gardens underneath their house. And they, they took all their money and traded it for gold. And they basically hoarded up in their house. Well, there was one guy who did that up in the, in the New England states not long ago. Came out of his cave. He'd been in there like 20 years. Yeah. Couldn't believe the world was still standing. What had he been doing for that whole time? He hadn't had television. I guess he read a lot. But, uh, and it could be a hoax. He may just be messing with folks. But the idea is that there were people who went to extremes because they thought there was going to be seven years of tribulation. They thought Jesus would have come in the year 2000 and tribulation would follow Right. That Jesus came and he raptured up the apostles and, right. and some of those who were very faithful in the early church and now we're waiting on the, the third coming. 
Right. I don't know. Yeah, they, and they, and I, I can't see, I, I've asked people this that have asked me that question. I don't see how you could say Jesus came in AD 70 if he only promised to come one time. He never said, I'm going to come twice. He never says, I'm going to come three times. He never says, uh, you'll see me again, and then you'll see me again, and then you'll see me again. When Jesus returns to the sky, it's over. There is, there is never an illustration Jesus uses that can show in his own words that he plans on coming and getting a few. And, you know, this isn't like he has to. Heaven is large, but that, you don't have to carpool six or seven times to get there. You know, we're not waiting on the train to get here. We're not waiting on the I hope I'm on the caboose when he comes. It's not like that. This isn't a subsystem. This isn't a train system. The sky's open. First Thessalonians 4 and 5. Those two chapters tell us a lot. The sky opens. The trumpet sounds. Christ receives us. He never touches his foot on the earth. He receives us in the sky. And we go home. That's the way it is. It's not meant to be complicated. Uh, but people will use these to complicate it. One thing that you got to keep in mind when you're trying to figure out what different things are, whether it's Revelation, whatever else, whatever it is, it will not contradict another biblical truth. That's true. And when you go to passages to talk about the dead will rise first, we will be called together in the clouds to stand in judgment. The earth will burn with a fervent heat. Yes. All will be melted away. Nothing in Scripture is going to contradict another biblical truth right. and make it to be false. So if my understanding of something does not jive with another understanding of something, one of those understandings is wrong. Correct. And so you can't you can't hold to, oh yes, I believe in the biblical judgment and, and us going to the clouds and oh but wait. Right. Some of our and stuff up. <clears throat> yeah. Well and the misunderstanding of the rapture is based on a misunderstanding of the verse where it's used. Matthew basically says uh, woe, Jesus says, woe to you on that day when uh, judgment comes because some of you will be nursing children. You know, some of you will have to walk a long distance. And that is a reference to the fall of Jerusalem because they had to flee to Masada to get away from the Roman persecution. And so he says, some of you will be taken, some will be left. That doesn't say raptured. It means that some will be arrested and some will not be. Because there were certain people that were higher, we might say, uh, on the watch list. They were wanted for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so some were spared. And Jesus says, woe to those women, to the, the ones who were nursing babies, that they have to take their children and flee to the mountains, to Masada. It's a prophecy of, of uh, AD 70. And we do have people, even within the church, that say Jesus came back then. And I have asked this question to all of them. Then what does that mean for the rest of us? Is he coming again? Again? You know? Or are we just stuck here? Uh, and the basic reason why that, want, that some people teach that is because they believe that God had to bring ultimate destruction to everything that was, had anything to do with Judaism. Well, he accomplished that with the burning of the temple and with the sack of Rome in, in AD 70. But Jesus didn't have to do that. He allowed foreign powers to do it which is consistent with scripture every time there is a judgment against god's people it is a foreign power that does it what happened to the captivity that means they were taken captive okay they were captives in egypt they were captives in babylon they were captives in assyria 
they were at home, but still technically captive under the Roman Empire. So God is anything. He's consistent. He is consistent. He will use a foreign power to bring his people to their knees. We are the New Testament church. God will bring foreign powers for, from now until the day he comes again to teach us, to discipline us, to stay on target. Uh, it's just the way he works. And he does that intentionally so that we might be able to pay attention when evil comes into our presence. We shouldn't follow the ways of evil. So John is just basically saying, you know, turn your list, tear your hearing aids up, you know, listen up. And I love how he says, blessed is he who reads, that's sight, and he who hears, that's listening. If you'll just pay attention, I've got a message for you. And he says, I am both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom with patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What was the Lord's day? Sunday. John is completely isolated on an island. If we know anything about John, we know he is loving, caring, and he loves the church. He's a shepherd. Does that not indicate that this book was revealed to him on the Lord's day? That's right. The book was revealed on the Lord's day. And he has not had communion with the saints in a congregation. He's been on an island in exile. And he knows what day that is. He knew when the Lord's day was coming. And this day, this Lord's day, this message is brought to him. And then it says, uh, I was in the spirit of the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice and a trumpet saying, the same thing we just read, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, the visions you see, he says, write it in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of those seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in bright garment, down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were like white as wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as dead. But he laid his hand on me, saying to him, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. And there's a little bit more there, but we're running out of time. He falls on his face. And he worships. In no, in no way does he, if he's paying attention, is Jesus saying, I'm here to take you home. He's not saying, I'm here uh, in AD 70 to bring judgment. I'm going to give you a message. That's not it at all. He's saying, I've got a message. I need you to write it down. Now, this is a message of hope, too, because if John's going to deliver the message, how's he going to do it? He's going to have to write it, and he knows that they're going to read it. But later, when he's released from his prison, he will be able to confirm it. This is what I saw. Remember I wrote to you about this? The seven churches. This is what I saw. And he, uh, I love his emphasis. If you like details, he's a guy of details. He's going to give us a lot of details. And so he goes on down through and talks about these seven churches, which we'll get to uh, next 
next Wednesday night. And we're not going to wade out too far into the middle of Revelation because I do believe that a lot of the message, up to chapter 20 at least, was intended for those seven congregations. Um, there's a certain level of persecution that escalated throughout their history in the first and second century. All right. Fred? Yes. Baptist preacher by the name of Ray Somers has a commentary he wrote on the book of Revelation. Uh, the late W.B. W. West used to say that the first 11 chapters about as good as you can read them. <laughs> yeah. But Somers made a statement, I think, I agree, and I agree with him 100%, and I think you do too. He said the book of Revelation must be understood in light of what it meant to the people to whom it was first written. I agree wholeheartedly. What comfort would it be to know 2,000 years from now God's going to do something to help you? Right. That's exactly right. And I, I think that that's where we leave it tonight is that if, I, if, I, if you call me, and that's, what the, that's what the martyrs and the Christians in the first century are doing. They're calling on God. You know, if you're calling on me, let's say, let's say Jeff calls me. He says, Ray, I need your help. No problem. I'll be there. And I'll tell you what, when I come, I'm going to bring this and I'm going to bring that. And I am going to, okay, great. And I show up to help his great, 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 between the time of the first century and to now is far greater than any distance in biblical history. From the time of the prophecy of the seed to the confirmation of Abraham, from Abraham to Moses, from Moses to the time of Christ, no age has lasted as long as this one. But in the first century, Jesus says to these seven churches that no longer exist, I'm coming to help. And I'm going to do something for you. And he uses the foreign powers and he uses the angels and so forth to make that happen. I know they're ringing at that of me. Did, did, was there a first bell? No. That's what y'all get for not ringing a bell. I think a lot of preachers use the book of Revelation to raise money. Yes. Yes, they do. And they're doing it right now. So they can have jets and nice homes. And That's right. Don't want to fly on the plane with demons. Isn't that what Copeland said? <laughs> Can't fly on regular jets. There's, there's, uh, there's demons on there. So I'll just... I want to cast out demons. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> he thought he could do that. It's only when it's convenient. It's Thank you for tuning in to the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast, and specifically this study of New Testament books. If you have a specific Bible question that relates to the material we just covered, please feel free to email me that at rayreynoldsrap at gmail. We want to encourage you to tune into every broadcast, follow us on social media, and get regular updates on the content. Follow, subscribe, share, and set your notifications so you don't miss any broadcasts or blogs that are posted. Check out the website for free books and Bible study materials at rayreynoldsrap.com. Hope you have a wonderful day, and may the Lord bless you as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible Correspondence Course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Somerdale, Alabama, 36580.
or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.